0: Dr. David Bender Samuel Samuel stood up in front of a bunch of translators in Papua New Guinea. We had been working hard at doing translation work in our various language groups where God had been bringing us to do this work. And uh, when he stood up in front of this group of people, he came from England. And he said, I was sent from England to come to you. And my task that uh, they gave me was to ask you, was to, to encourage you because of the fact that you're doing such important work for the kingdom, and I wanted to be the person that would be encouraging you. So, would you do me a favor? Be encouraged. (laughs) That's what he said. I think about that, and I think, okay, I'm encouraged. (laughs) Jesus uh, said to his disciples as he stood before him, before he left, before he left earth for the last time. And their disciples were kind of concerned about what was taking place. They were overwhelmed by all the things they'd just seen. they have seen him raised from the dead. They saw him out among the people. They saw the graves open, the curtain torn, the, the way to God made bare for all of us to come. They saw all of this, and they, they were able to put their hands into his side and see that he was alive. And they were able to sit down with him and watch him eat, and they could see he was not a ghost. He was real, right in front of them. And they had already lived with him for several years, walking with him along the way, knew what he had to say, knew what he had to teach. And they were excited about all of that. And they learned that he could raise the dead if he wanted to. He could heal the blind if he needed to. Whatever it was that he wanted to do, he could do. And they had learned to trust him in everything. Even if they became hungry, they knew they'd be fed. Even if there was nothing in the the coffers, no fish, no bread, they could feed the, the thousands. They had seen all of this. They even saw... Peter walking on water when Jesus said, come. So they knew there was nothing that Jesus could not do, would not do for his father. And, and so now these disciples were all standing in front of him and they're saying, wow, what's next? What is happening? What is happening? Can you put yourself there? Could you be one of those people standing there watching Jesus? Some of them were real concerned. It says some doubted. I don't know exactly what they were doubting. It doesn't say what they were doubting. Perhaps they were doubting maybe I'm not the one. Maybe I'm not the one. Maybe this is for somebody else. I don't know why I'm here. You ever feel that way? Standing in front of Jesus and thinking maybe he's not talking to me. He's talking to these guys but he's not talking to me. I don't know what they were thinking, neither do you, but Jesus did. And in that moment, that important moment, I can just see him rising up to his full stature before his disciples. And he says some amazing words. He says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to know all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I will be with you always even until the end of the age. Right? Is that what he said? No, that's not what he said. I just misquoted scripture to you. I'll explain that in a minute. But it's important to understand that he is telling his disciples that his, their job is to go and make disciples. So that's the uh, errand in which they were sending the disciples out he was sending his disciples out on this errand to make disciples. So can you all do me a favor? Will you be Jesus' disciples? Can you do that? Who among you refuses? Anybody? If I ask for a show of hands, how many of you want to be Jesus' disciple? You know, this is, this is some powerful stuff here, what he just asked us to do, be his disciples. And he gave this ta- job to his disciples, go and make disciples. Oh, that's a big job, making disciples. Making disciples. You know, when I first uh, came into Bible college and I was a young student thinking that I was going to be a youth minister, that's what I thought because, you know, all young students want to be youth ministers. Well, by the way, we're young, and only ones who would listen to us are the kids. So, makes sense. We'll be youth ministers. Yeah, what what grown-up is going to want to hear what we have to say anyway? And so, at least we'll do that much. So, I was one of them. You know, I wanted to be a youth minister, and so I went to college, and... I got involved in studying Scripture, and as I studied Scripture, it began to talk to me in ways that I never thought it would talk to me before. I thought I knew everything. In fact, I even got into some heavy debates with my fellow classmates about what Scripture had to say. soon learned that I didn't know anything. I was really kind of, when it comes to Scripture, pretty stupid. (laughs) But I uh, was really interested in the Word of God and I remember listening to a preacher preach this sermon, this kind of sermon, where Jesus is talking about the Great Commission, the commission to the church, and his standing before his disciples and saying, all authority is in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples. And it gripped me so hard. It gripped me. And I'm thinking, how am I going to do that? How am I going to do that? And I could almost identify with those disciples that were standing before him doubting. Oh, I don't know. I just don't know. What's my job? What's my responsibility? Well, after I uh, kind of wrestled with that and finally decided that I needed to be obedient and do what God wanted me to do, and yes, we, I wound up marrying my lovely wife Alice right here. as She came with me. And uh, she got caught up in what I was caught up in. And I had heard about the Bible translation ministry and how people didn't have the word of God in their own mother tongue, and they were uh, coming to Christ uh, by the hundreds in Papua New Guinea. Churches were forming, and and congregations were being established, and still no word in their own mother tongue. They had to rely on some foreign uh, translation, so uh, their preachers were always translating the word on the fly rather than having a solid uh, Bible that they can turn to and say, this is what the scriptures say. I heard about that, and I got excited about it when I learned that there were thousands, literally thousands, of languages out there that still had no scriptures. I thought that was for the doctorates. You know, you got to be a doctorate, right, uh, to, to uh, go out there and translate the scriptures. You know, you have to, these were the, for the ivory tower Christians, those who've been around for a long time. They're the ones who are supposed to be translating the Bible, right? But uh, a man by the name of Al Hamilton came to me and said, "No, this is for you." What? I'm going to be a youth minister. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of the way I felt. You know, I, I started thinking about it. And, and, and I, it, I started to worry a little bit about those people because, you know, how are they going to know the truth? How are they going to be able to study the truth? How are they going to know that what they're being taught by those who are teaching them is actually true? And I learned that there were a lot of cults being raised up too, along with Christian faith and people who were leading people astray and they didn't have scriptures to, to counter it with. In fact, even Mohammed uh, once said that if I would have had the scriptures in my hand or I could have studied, I might have chosen to be a Christian. You know, so you get these kinds of things. You know, scriptures really make a difference. The Bible makes a difference. So I was along in my pathway uh, making these decisions and finally came in uh, contact with uh, Pioneer Bible Translators and we, Alice and I, decided together that we were going to be obedient to God, His call, and we went to Dallas Christian College, Dallas Christian College. Uh, the, I went to Dallas to the International Institute of Linguistics and learned to become translators, joined Pioneer Bible Translators and went to Papua New Guinea. And uh, we had two daughters by that time. We drugged them along with us. and. Uh, We wound up in Papua New Guinea, and uh, uh, we did uh, survey work trying to figure out which languages—over 800 languages—in Papua New Guinea, and we learned only a little more than 200 of those languages actually have scriptures in them, and the other 600 were without. And so uh, we'd also heard that in the Sepik, there were there were languages that uh, the churches were being planted in without scripture, and along the Ramu River, there were languages in which uh, churches were rising up without scriptures, and we felt like they needed the Word of God, so we did this uh, survey work. And then we settled on the Bore, uh, the Bore people, and uh, there's a, that's a story. You'll have to come back later to hear how that happened. Uh, but uh, we did decide that that's where we needed to be, and, and we began doing the Bible translation work. But all the time that all of this was going on, this passage of scripture that I just quoted to you, was resonating in my heart and jesus says make disciples of all nations go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the father and the son holy spirit and teaching them to and i said know all things that was a misquote that's not what scriptures tell us that does not tell us to know all things whatsoever god has commanded us and so many times That's what the church services are all about. That's what our Sunday schools are all about. It's teaching people to know everything there is to know about God, right? And we know a lot, don't we? Every one of us in here probably knows more than we need to know in order to become obedient to him. But that's not the word that he used. He did not use the word know. He used the word obey. He said, teaching them to obey all things whatsoever I've commanded you. That word obey makes all the difference. For so, many time, for so many years, I think the church sits waiting on God to do something when all along they don't see that they are the instrument in God's hands through which He is going to do something. It's the church that God will use to accomplish His purpose here on earth. It's you. Every one of you. You are his disciples. You're his disciples. And he said to his disciples, Go, therefore, and make disciples. Now that word disciple kind of gets my attention. What does it mean to be a disciple? What is a disciple? Well, in order to really fully understand that, a really good uh, way to go about it is Look at what Jesus probably meant when he said it to his disciples. What was the culture he was in? What did they think of as a disciple? What was a disciple? Well, uh, a good little bit of study and research will show you that in Galilee, Galilee was actually known as the most religious people, the people of Galilee, the most religious people of the world at the time of Jesus. It was, if you would go to the, uh, the records of the rabbis, they all pointed to Galilee as where the religious people were. And some people would say, you know, they could look at the scriptures and say, what good could come out of Galilee? That came from Jerusalem. The people of Jerusalem said, what good could come out of Galilee? And the reason the people of Jerusalem said, what good, good could come out of Galilee, Galilee is because they thought the Galileans were backwards, old-fashioned. They, didn't, they weren't hip. The Hellenistic Jews are the ones who were world oriented and they had the Greek coming in and they had the Romans coming in and they had the world at their feet and they were wanting to embrace the world. And so they became what they called the Hellenistic Jews. And the Sanhedrin of the time was made up largely of Hellenistic Jews. These are the ones who were hip and knew everything there was to know about what's going on now. And those Galileans, oh man, they're backwards people. They don't know anything. They're stuck in their ways, old-fashioned, and uh, that was uh, their attitude towards the Galileans. When Jesus was born, where was he born? In Bethlehem. And his first ministry, where was it? To the Galileans. You know, when Jesus was raising up, he was raised up with a Galilean method of education. In the Galilean community, if you were five years old, if you were six years old, they said you were worthy of the Torah at age five or age six. You're worthy of the Torah, ready to hear it. And they'd send these kids, little kids, to the synagogues, and they would be entered into... uh, well, we call it preschool, you'd call it, maybe. They called it bet Betsefer. Betsefer. And the Betsefer is where these children would go. And, there, and when they go into the Betsefer, the, the leaders, the teachers of the Betsefer would teach these children the Torah. And the objective was, by the time they would reach 10 or 11 years old, they would have memorized most of the Torah by then. They would have the first five books of the Bible would be memorized. Oh, that's a lot if you think about it. Genesis, that's a big book. Exodus, Leviticus, that's a boring one. Uh, you know, Numbers and Deuteronomy. They, they would have them all, and plus they they'd be really big in the Psalms. Psalms would be another one that they would spend a lot of time in memorizing. Oh, they would teach them songs. They would learn to sing the songs, and the songs would be ways to memorize Scripture. Do you have songs that you know that are Scripture songs? Boy, if you know Scripture songs, that's a good way to, to remember Scripture. They'd teach them songs, they'd have great methods of educating, and these kids would grow up and loving the, the Word of God. They loved the Scriptures, and they would become, they would go up to be about 10 years old, 11 years old. And about that time, then the parents would send them off to be apprentices. They'd learn some kind of trade, either a carpenter or, uh, you know, uh, some kind of a, a farmer or a fisherman or whatever. They'd learn some kind of trade so that they can make a living at age 10 and 11 years old. And then by the time they reached age 12, the boys would be uh, ready for bar mitzvah. Uh, bar mitzvah was the time when they said, well, you know the, you know the scriptures. You know the word and you now have a way of caring for yourself, you are worthy and ready to become an adult. And so at age 12, they become adults. And then, well, someone not too long after that would think and contemplate marriage, and uh, by the time 14, 15 years old, uh, that's about the time they would do that. But if they would stick with it, they would get into a group from around... uh, uh, 12, 13 years old, they'd enter the uh, Midrash, which is like a high school. This is where they'd become acquainted with all the teachings of the rabbis and where the rabbis would interpret the scriptures that they'd already memorized. And so now they can learn uh, these ra- rabbinical interpretations. And so they kind of get the principle of the scrip- of these uh, uh, Torah in their head. And then by the time they reached 15... If they so chose, they could go to Bet uh, Talmud. Yeah, I almost forgot what I was going to say. Bet Talmud. Bet Talmud. And that was only for people who were really serious. The Bet Talmud was, their job was, they would get invited by the rabbis to come into Bet Talmud, and then they would join the rabbi, and they would follow the rabbi everywhere the rabbi went. If the rabbi did something, then they would do that, and they learned how to do that. And their objective was not only to know everything that the rabbi knew, but also to do everything the rabbi did so that they can become like the rabbi. And so they would follow the rabbi around. And, you know, So many needed their help, the rabbi would go. With their, uh, uh, those who are involved in the Bet talmud would come along. If there were more than one, they'd call them the talmudim, or the Talmudin, I've got that wrong, Talmudin. And the Talmudin would follow the rabbi around everywhere they went, and uh, they would learn everything that the the rabbi would uh, teach them. And their objective was to become just like the rabbi, just like the rabbi, knowing everything that they needed to know, until they reached around age 30. And about age 30 then, they were ready, if they were so willing, to become rabbi themselves, right? So when Jesus stood before his disciples and he said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, what do you think he was telling them? What word did he use? Well, he would probably use the Hebrew word or maybe the Aramaic word. Fortunately for us, both the Hebrew word and the Aramaic word are the same. And you know what it is? Talmudin. Talmudin. Go, therefore, and make Talmudin of all nations. What? What does that mean? Well, the only way we can really fully understand is in the next words that Jesus said after he talks about baptizing them into him and teaching them to obey all things whatsoever I have commanded you. In other words, not to know everything, but to do everything. How many of you know everything there is to know about what Jesus commanded you? Can we see show of hands? Usually the preacher's sitting up here, and I I would say, look at your preacher. (laughs) Why? We all know there's something more to learn, don't we? We all know that. This idea of teaching people to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you is a little daunting. Can you see how how the disciples may have been a little bit timid about this whole thing? Some of them a little nervous. Meaning, what do you mean? We're going to teach them to do all things whatsoever Jesus did? We're going to teach them that we're going to become like Jesus and Jesus is going to have these people become like Jesus too by our example, by our witness, as we witness to them and show them how to observe all things Jesus did, then they'll do the same thing. That's what Jesus was telling his disciples to do. That's what I am telling you. You must do. This is your job. This is your job. To teach those people who you are reaching out to how to love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And how to implement everything he's teaching us into our lives so that we are obedient in all things. And that word obedience is not a small word that Jesus used to obey him, to obey him. Jesus actually said this in in Matthew, earlier on in, in his ministry in Matthew 7, he talks to his disciples and he said, many people will come to me and say to me, Lord, Lord, you know, haven't I done all these things in your name? And he, and he will say to, say to him, depart from me, for I do not even know you, only those who do the will of the Father. What he's actually said there was, only those who obey the will of the Father. This word obedience is... Sometime, sometimes missing in our understanding of our walk with Christ, that we are being called on to be obedient servants of his. Now, a lot of people are going to fall away because they don't like that idea of being obedient. I hope none of you fall away from that. Paul, the great, the great book of Romans that talks about the grace of God is willing to forgive us of all our sins. And we don't enter into a walk with God on our own merit. It's not by the things that we do that make us His children. It's the love He has for us that makes us His children. And it's the faith we have in Him that brings us into a right relationship with Him, right? That's what the Scriptures tell us. But in Romans, that same, that same magnificent book of Romans Paul introduces this concept of obedience in the very first chapter when he talks about his role to take the word of God to the Gentiles, that's you and me, so that they may know the obedience of Christ, verse 5, if you want to look that up, so that they may know the obedience of faith. The obedience of faith. Some of us get really confused about faith. What is faith? We are saved by faith, are we not? We're saved by faith. And we believe in Jesus Christ as our Lord and our Savior. And because of that, Jesus acknowledges us. He longs for us to believe that. He longs for us to know and understand who he is. He is Lord and Savior. And it's by our faith. By our faith. But what kind of faith? Paul said it. It's obedient faith. And in fact, if you study Scripture all the way through, you will find that God is not too pleased with disobedient faith. In fact, those words don't go together very well, do they? Have you ever heard of disobedient faith? How many have ever heard of that? Disobedient faith? Disobedient faith? That's not acknowledged in Scripture. In fact, there is a way of talking about disobedient faith, and that's called unfaithfulness. The disobedient are unfaithful. They believe, they know, they understand what God's telling them, but still, we're going to do it our way. That's That's called unfaithfulness. But obedient faith, that's what God longs for. Those people who say, Jesus, I know who you are, and I know what you want, and I will do it. I will follow you. I will repent of my my disobedience, and I will become obedient to you and to you alone. And that's why Jesus said, teach them to obey all things whatsoever I have commanded you. So it is by faith that we are saved, but it is an obedient faith. The one who hears his words and says, yes, yes 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 i will follow i will do i will obey he tells me to stop lying yes okay i'm gonna quit i'm going to start telling the truth he tells me to stop stealing yes i'll leave it alone i won't touch it i won't go there i will only use what i earn It's this idea of recognizing Jesus as our rabbi, our teacher, whom we follow and we learn from him everything that he does and we do exactly what he teaches us to do. We are his talabin, talabin. We are his talabin. And so this morning, I'm hoping that all of you see yourself as his talabin. And if you're not, then how do you become one? Oh, it's simple acknowledge him as for who he is he is Lord and he's our Savior acknowledge him say yes to him and whatever he commands of us we will do make that decision now I was in Papua New Guinea I have to get into this story really quickly here I was in Papua New Guinea Alice and I were in a, um, among the Bore people. We had been given the responsibility of traveling up to Ukarumpa. And there we were gonna take, uh, take some uh, workshops to prepare ourselves to do uh, a dictionary uh, the, to, to uh, reduce the Bore language into writing and I wanted some more education on that and they had some uh, courses up at Ukarumpa and so we'd gone up to Ukarumpa to take these workshops. And, and then after we had been finished with that, We're on our way back down uh, the mountainside to uh, uh, Medang, where our our main headquarters were. Then uh, we would get a plane and we'd fly back out to Tambotmaning, close to Tambotmaning. It's a long story how we get there. But then uh, it's a long way out. We're in the tropical rainforest in the jungle doing this translation work there. So we were excited about that translation work but we've been up to Ukarumpa. Now we're down and we're on our way down the road. And as we're going down the road, our radiator gives out on us and we start seeing steam coming out. Have you ever had that experience? And we had steam coming out of the radiator and we're out in the middle of the jungles, up in the mountains, and we're thinking, oh my goodness, what are we gonna do now? And we knew there were a lot of thieves on this road. This is, uh, they call them the rascals. And these rascals were dangerous people. You, they would steal everything from you and they might even harm you, but you, you gotta be really careful. But now we're, we're on the road and uh, there's uh, no water in the radiator and we've gotta do something. So we're kind of putting along the road, trying to look and see if we can find water somewhere. There's no gas station. There's nothing. We're just out in the middle. And I see down this, down this uh, valley, there's a pond down there. So I said, OK, Alice, you stay here in the car. I'm going to get this uh, jug. I happen to have one in the car. I'm going to go down there and get some water, and I'll bring it back up here, and I'll, I'll fill this up. So I got the jug, and I headed down, the, down in the valley there. And there's that pond there. And I got to the pond, and I went to go fill it up, and these guys came to me. They were kind of, kind of roughly dressed. Uh, they looked like they had been working hard, and, and they were uh, kind of unkempt in a lot of ways. And, and uh, they came up to me, and I was a little bit nervous. Oh, boy, I heard some bad things about this area. I hope I'm not facing it. And this, these guys uh, looked at me, and they said, uh, uh, who are you? Now, they're talking in pigeon. and... Melanesian pigeons almost like English suppose me talk talk one time you long Melanesian pigeon I think you by huh? you sabe long talk talk along me me little little English he stop inside you can hot him huh true no <laughs> well some of them some people could almost hear it there's actually English in that language but it's a trade language for the people and I didn't know uh, this language the, the language of the people that would be in this area but I could talk pigeon to them and so they talk pigeon to me and they said who are you and I said, my name is uh, David Parrish, uh, people of the Bari. people call me Karbai. If you, know, if you know any of those people, they call me Karbai. And they say, well, what are you doing? What do you do? And I said, well, I'm a Bible translator. And they, they get, we, Talk is the way they talk about that. Man Belong tiny Talk and the one people who turn the talk. I'm a translator translating the Bible for the Bore people, and I'm on my way back to them. I'm hoping they'll feel good about the fact that I'm helping somebody and they need to leave me alone. And, uh, uh, and so they said, well, I'm, uh, I'm on my way back. We're going to uh, continue to do that translation work. But right now my car is broken down. We have a problem with a radiator. I need to take this water up to it. And they said, oh, we'll help you. And so they grabbed the water and they, they start coming up uh, with me. And on the way up, they said, you know, our, our language, uh, we belong to the Garia people, Sumo Garia people, and we don't have a Bible in our language. And I said, oh, that's, that's interesting. And he said, uh, can you stay here and do the translation for us? And I said, oh, no, no, can't do that because uh, I've got to do a translation for the Bore people, and it takes about a good 20 years. <laughs> from the time you start to the time you finish. You know, so uh, they said, oh, okay. And then they, they took the water up and we put the water in and they wanted to visit a little more. And they said, uh, do you think it would be possible that um, somebody could come and do a translation for our people? And uh, something I learned about the uh, uh, Papua New Guinean people is you don't make promises that you can't fulfill. If you promise something, you better keep it. And even if you say it's possible for them, they might see it as a promise. So you have to be very guarded in what you say. And so I said, all right, I'll tell you what. If you go to Medang and talk to the office there, they might be able to send somebody up to the Gadia to do a survey, because I knew that that was possible, that they could do that. They could do a survey of your people, find out if it's really a a language that needs a translation, and then, then a decision can be made after that. So they seemed to think that it was a good idea. So they helped us out. We got in the car, and we took off, and we made our way to Medang. Got to Medang, got in the plane, threw it, flew out to uh, Bunapaz, got in a boat, got, uh, went down to Dabatmaning, and that's where Alice and I live. And our kids are there, and Alice is waiting for me. And we we all, uh, no, Alice, wouldn't wait. You were, they were all with me then. But anyway, uh, so then it was only a, a week, and we have a two-way radio, which we keep in touch with the town. And up on that radio, the... Uh, director of uh, our branch uh, contacted uh, me and said, Dave, uh, I've got these guys in the office. Uh, They say they're from this group called Gaudia. And I said, oh, yeah, I know about them. (laughs) And they said, um, they said you promised you'd do a survey among them. (laughs) Well, I didn't really promise them I'd do a survey. I said they need to talk to you, and you guys would think about it. And then uh, maybe uh, there'd be somebody who could do a survey among you. And they said, and the director said, will you come back to town and head up that survey? Uh. (laughs) All right. So we went back to town. And I got together with other uh, men from our uh, Pioneer Bible Translators to form a small group of people. And we started out on this survey. Now, I'm going to try to do this quickly. Otherwise, I'm going to run into the other worship service. But... uh, (laughs) Uh, so uh, what we did then is uh, we went to the first village, In the first village that the, one of the, an old man came out to, to greet us, and they said, "Oh, you're the people who turn the talk." And I said, "Yes." Are you coming here to translate the Bible for us? And I said, "No." I said, "I'm here to do a survey to find out." How viable this language is for a translation? Where we have to compare it to other languages. There might be another language that's close to yours that there's a translation already in it, and they can do an adaptation for yours. Or if there's no other language near you that uh, has a translation in it, then we might have to set up uh, an opportunity for somebody to come directly to you to do a translation, a full translation among you. But we have to do the survey to find out what needs to happen. And they seem to accept that. They say, okay. And they, we went, ate with them. When we started the, the long list of certain, we ask all kinds of questions like what's this, and what's this, and what's this, and what's this. And we point to things. We can't speak their language, so we learn how to ask all kinds of questions without talking their language. And they give us answers and we write them down. And we get these long word lists. And then after we're all done, we say, okay, it's time to go to the next village with someone take us with us, go with us. And they say yes. And so we left that village and went on to the next village. We halfway to the next village, a whole bunch of people came out to us and greeted us. I don't know how they knew we were coming, but they knew we were coming. They, a bunch of people came out and greeted us and said, oh, you're the translators. You're the ones who were coming to translate the Bible, right? I said, no. <laughs> we're not here to translate the Bible. We're here to do the survey. And they explained that all over again. And they said, okay. And we went in and did the did survey. And then when that was all done, we might sleep that night. I think we did that, that, that village, sleep that night. And then we'd go on to the next... Next village, again we were greeted. And every time, every village we went to, a group of people would come out. The word had gotten out. And I, I tell you, it was amazing how that word had gotten out way ahead of us. I thought we were moving fairly quickly, but it wasn't as quick as the word had gotten out. And these people were coming to us asking us, will you translate the Bible for us? We would love it if you'd stay here and translate the Bible for us. And every time I'm having to say, no, I'm sorry, I'm not here for that purpose. I'm only here to find out about the need. And so we, we uh, were kind of ushered around village to village. And we completed that survey so much quicker than we had ever anticipated because the people were so cooperative and ready for to receive us and helpful. And, and uh, we had a lot of stacks and stacks of papers that we'd gathered up. We were going to take it back to Madang. We're going to analyze this. We're going to do the comparison with other languages to find out what the real need is and make a decision. That was all part of the process. But, Wait, by the time we got to the last village, this old man that had greeted us in the very first time, he came back to us. And he said, uh, we were loading up the car, getting our stuff ready. And he said, are you guys leaving already? Yes, we're done. We finished a lot sooner. He says, please don't go. And I'm thinking, oh, no. <laughs> I had heard this so many times. I was getting, it was starting to cause anxiety in my heart. You know, I said, no, look, uh, we have other work that we need to do. I'm doing uh, the survey. We can't stay here and uh, do the translation. We have to go on and make this report. And he says, no, no. I didn't mean that. (laughs) He says, I just wanted you to stay one more night with us. And I said to the guys, well, we're done early. What do you think? And they all said, yeah, let's stay the night. So we hauled all of our stuff back out. He led us to a big house. And uh, it was a big, empty building, actually. And he said, you guys stay here. This is the, the, the size of the floor was right from that side almost, well, it was a little, maybe a little longer than this side, that wide. And at least from this side of, to that side, this is how big. Completely empty, nobody in there. And they said, you stay here, wait for us, and we will be back. So we said, OK. And we waited, and we waited. No one came, no one came. And so we decided, let's get our paperwork out. We'll start studying the language. We'll start doing our analysis now. And so we started sitting down, and we waited. No one came, and then the sun started going down. When the sun got down, then we started seeing these people coming up alongside the door, and they had these big, giant wooden bowls full of food. And they brought them in front of us, and they sat them down right beside us, in front of each one of us. And we're thinking, man, how are we going to eat all that? That's a lot of food. And uh, so we sat, we knew, we'd, we'd wait for everybody to get in, and then maybe we'll... We'll eat together. And and the food kept coming. And kept coming. And kept coming. And they would come in the door and they come in the door. And they filled up the whole the whole floor in front of us from one side of the wall all the way all the way over to the other. And it got thicker and thicker. And it, I was saying, What is happening? This is amazing. And so we just waited. And when they, they had stopped coming in, people started filling in the other half of the building, the house. And they all started coming in. They all started coming in. They'd sit down. And people were coming in. And we just heard noises outside, lots of people coming. It was getting kind of excited. And everybody was joining us. And we said, whoa, this is something. You know, this is going to be something else. And, and this old man came up and sat down in front of the bowls on the other side there. And he faced us and he said, okay, you can eat now. Okay, so uh, we, we said a little prayer and then uh, we picked up the bowl and kind of shared it with each other and say, okay guys, here's some, here's some. And uh, there's a whole lot of stuff there. So we ate a little bit we weren't very hungry. We ate a little bit and we were watching. They were all watching us. <laughs> yeah. They didn't eat anything. They didn't do anything. We just sat there. And they waited for us. And eventually we said, okay, we've had enough now. <laughs> and then the bowls went everywhere. And everybody sat, and we sat and watched them. as <laughs> they ate, and they, 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 the noise got loud, and everything was ruckusy. People outside shouting inside, people inside shouting outside. And it was a big uh, ruckus. So we just sat and waited for them. And by the time, I mean, when everything was all done, they collected all the bowls up. they went gone. And everybody standing there, and that old man sat up in front of us and said, okay. He said, uh, we are so thankful that you stayed and waited for us. And we all wanted to come and ask you this question. He so we have heard what you said, that you're not here to uh, translate the Bible for us. But we just had this one question. Are we ever going to get a, a Bible in our language? Now I'm stuck. How am I going to answer that? I can't say yes, because then I'm going to be the one doing it. Because uh, uh, I don't know who's going who's to follow my lead on that one. I, I, I couldn't say no, because you know, I know what God's will is, that everybody have uh, access to his word, right? Everybody should. So I should say yes, but I don't, if I say yes, then that kind of obligates us to be the ones to do it. and we don't, We're just a small translation team at this time at this time and we don't have a lot of people so I couldn't say yes so I said okay full information let's go full information this seems really wise right (laughs) and so I started telling him I said you know to get a translator to come and translate for you it's a big thing but first of all I have to go back uh, the people have to go to the churches all the churches and we have to ask the question is there anyone here would like to be a translator a Bible translator can I see a show of hands how many of you would like to become A Bible translator. Don't worry. I ask that question everywhere I go. (laughs) And you know what what the answer is? is? Not very many people are prepared for that. That's a full commitment life. 20 years. That's hard. It's hard to make that decision to do that. And actually, very few churches even ask that question anymore. Very few people even know that there's a need of such a thing. So I have to tell them that when I go and ask, nobody answers. Nobody is ready. So I have to go church after church after church and ask somebody. And I go to the Bible colleges, and I ask Bible college after Bible college after Bible college, would somebody like to become a Bible translator? And you know how many people say yes? Just about as many people as is right here in this group. Just about as many. There might be one, there might be two, but, you know, there's thousands of languages out there. And I tell them that there are thousands of languages waiting for somebody to come and do a translation work. And so it's really hard to find people who would be willing to take the time. And once they make that decision, then they have to get prepared. They've got to go to school. They have to train. They have to get, become educated. And besides that, they've got to go back to the churches. And they have to ask the churches, will you support my work? And, you know, now churches, they're like supporting all kinds of work. Why should we support this work or your work or whatever? And so it's a hard thing to get the support up that you need to go out and do that work. And so then I talk about the fact that now they have to also make the decision that they're going to leave home. Everything that they're used to, every, all their families, the job that they thought they were going to do, they have to put that aside to do this one. They have to leave everybody. And they have to go to live among a people who they don't know, understand in a language that they don't speak, just so they can learn the language, reduce that language to writing. They've got to do all that. And so I went and told them full information. I figured this would help them understand how difficult it was. It makes sense, right? So I did all that. And then after that was done, the man turned around to the crowd and relayed it all back into Gotti everything that I had said. And so I waited for him to translate it all back to them. And it got noisy again, and people outside started shouting inside, inside, shouting outside, and it got loud, and we were waiting, wondering, what are they talking about? Because we didn't know, uh, we couldn't speak the language. You only had a lot of words, but we didn't, couldn't, couldn't speak that language. And, and then, uh, so it went on for several hours. It was pitch dark out, and I don't know how many people were outside, but it was a crowd out there. And then, uh, after it all died down, and uh, the man turned back around to me, and he said, we have heard what you've had to say. And we came to a conclusion. And I said, oh, what was your conclusion? You see, we're just a poor people. We have nobody in Parliament. We don't even have many, very many people who go to town to work. Oh, we're just farmers up here. We have no money. We just live off the land. And, and we, we just... Uh, We're not a very important people uh, as far as the world is concerned and all those people out there that need in translation. And we just came to the conclusion that we're not worthy. That's what he said. We're not worthy. And in my heart, I'm ready to, I'm, I'm, I'm usually a, I have a problem solver I like to solve problems and I want to have an answer and I'm struggling in my heart and I thought of a a sermon that Dave Robinson preached a a good friend of mine who preached this sermon I that just went right into my head and before the words came out of my mouth mouth saying no no you, you got me wrong I'm not saying you're not worthy I didn't I was that's really what I wanted to say I'm not saying you're not worthy but I was stopped in my tracks and you know what? I wound up saying you're right. You're right. In, in uh, Revelations chapter 5, when jo- John was before the throne and he was looking at the scroll and it was sealed. It was sealed. And he thought, who's going to unseal that scroll? And... Uh, They said, no one is worthy. No one is worthy. And then they said, look, the Lion of Judah. And he went to go look, and he saw not the Lion of Judah, but the Lamb who stood as slain. Only he is worthy. Only he is worthy. And so I related back to them that it is true that even though we're not worthy, God, in spite of our unworthiness, came to live among us to show us the way. And in spite of our unworthiness, he died on the cross for us. And in spite of our unworthiness, he gathered a piece. And he said, Go. Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things. And by the way, where do you find all things? All things whatsoever I've commanded you is right here. Bring the word of God to these people so that they have a chance to obey all things whatsoever I've commanded you. That's what he told us. And so I said to them, I said, you're right, you're unworthy. We're unworthy. We're all unworthy. There's not a people group out there that's worthy of what has been done for them. And yet, God loves you more than you will ever know. And so, you have to ask Him. And we will turn this to God, and we will let Him solve this problem. And you know what happened? The old man said, "Let's pray." And they bowed their heads. And they said, "God, would you please send someone to us? Would you please send someone to us?" I'm telling you this story because I think sometimes we fail to understand the depth of God's love for his people and he's calling us all to be instruments in his hands to share his love with anyone and everyone who needs it well after he, they uh, prayed this prayer I made this promise that everywhere I go from now on I'm telling this story so now you've heard it the world waits an answer will you go now I want to say this is the good part of the story a young man did make that decision and brought his family and they went to live among the Gizumal Gaudiya people and a translation work has begun there and it is in progress now it's not easy It's been a real long, hard work, but the work is still going on today. I felt better about that. But I also know that that's not the only one. All around the world, people wait to hear. Why do you think that Jesus did what he did? Came to this earth, lived the life the way he lived it, brought the disciples around him and told them and taught them how to be obedient, and then left them with this unbelievable commission to go into all nations and baptize them, teach them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you to obey all things. And then he said this last thing, and this is the most important thing that he said to them of all the things that he said as far as I'm concerned, and that is, I will be with you. I'll be with you. I'll be with you. So you're unworthy But I'll be with you. You, You're not ready. But I'll be with you. You don't know what words to say. But I'll be with you. And your job is not to make disciples of these people of you. Your job is to make them disciples of me, Jesus. And you give them everything they need so that they can do the job. I better quit or I'll have another crowd coming in. <laughs> so thank you for letting me share you, with you this. I hope it rests heavy on your heart today that you will think deeply about what God's calling you to. How will God use you? And will you be obedient? Thanks so much for checking out our message today. We hope you were challenged and blessed by it. We want to invite you to come and worship with us in person if you live in the Tri-Cities area. We meet on Sunday mornings at 9 and 1045 a.m. at One Fellowship Point in Kingsport, Tennessee. You can also get more information about us from our website or our mobile app. Have a great day.